Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, back after a month's break. Joined today by Ian Smith, Companies Editor. How are you doing, Ian? Not too bad, John. How are you? Welcome back. Thank you. Did you have a good break? I had a lovely break. Was Feeling you? extremely refreshed. Put up some bookshelves. I did. I also did some dissertation, which was, which was the main purpose of being away for a month. I'm not and, trying to get uh, you in trouble. Just thanks, <laughs> thanks, Ian. Thanks for that. Also did some, uh, some, some other decorating too. And also just generally sitting around in the sun because it was a, a beautiful month of weather. Also joined today by Tom Dines. How are you doing, Tom? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. So we've had a month of me not really having anything to do with this. You've been uh, holding the fort, Ian? I hope so. No, I feel, one, I feel, no one's I, invaded. I feel like I have... Absolutely no knowledge of what's going on in, in the world right now. I mean, I literally have switched off for a month, which is what I needed to do. No, absolutely nothing's happened. No, what, what's Lots what, has happened. Yeah, loads has happened. A lot of, in the corporate sector, a lot of retail news. There's been a lot of bearishness around the consumer and how that's reflecting in the results and trading statements of some of the ma- major retailers. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of debate about whether they are just using it as an excuse. And in fact, we've, we're just seeing kind of company-specific poor trading. I wrote in an editorial you know, a short while before I went on my uh, my sabbatical that I was worried about the, consu- the UK consumer and that this might start to be reflected in results. So, so I, I, I don't think it is... One of those sort of weather type excuses of companies sort of blaming the a general weak consumer market uh, for, for, for their own shortcomings. But there, there may be some element of that. But, but, sure. but actually, I do genuinely believe them when, when they say that the consumer is being a bit more frugal right now. I think that sounds very likely. Uh, what was quite interesting a few couple of weeks ago, we had DFS come out with their uh, profit warning and on the same day, some quite poor retail sales data for May. And then that was borne out again in Debenham's uh, trading update where they said May was the tough month and we're continuing to see week to week volatility. And if it's Debenham saying that, that it can be quite broadly indicative. So I don't think I don't think of Debenham's as a bellwether because Debenhams is, you know, they're the ultra discounter. You know, you, there was always a sale at Debenhams. You know, they have had some some tough times uh, of late. So I don't, I, I wouldn't look at Debenhams and think bellwether. Well, and then some people look at Dixon's car phone as a bellwether in the sense that you know electricals and that kind of sales can be quite sensitive uh, to consumer spending. But interestingly, they followed out with a trading statement saying that the UK consumer environment seems to be holding up for us. So there's that kind of the products that they're selling. How much is it just that they've got a good um, price point. But yeah, Dixon's car phone, people were very much looking forward to that, thinking, is it going to be the third D? It turned out it, it wasn't. So there, ha- there really has been a mix. M. Brown has been doing quite well. At the value end of the market, B&M, European Value Retail, also said its offer had been resonating well with customers. So we're definitely seeing a mixed bag. At the same time, there are concerns that were there when you went away around the consumer economy and uh, consumer credit in particular, which um, the Bank of England is looking closely at. So I think it's actually quite interesting to look at the price-to-earnings ratio across the retailers. And if you look at it from the lowest to highest, you start with the motor retailers, you go up through the um, general retailers and the more discretionary purchases, you then move through the food retailers, where we've had a couple of good quarterly updates, uh, and they are more highly valued, and then you hit the luxury retailers at the higher end. That's not surprising, but what it might be indicative of is that the market is readying itself for um, some kind of downturn in consumer sentiment and saying, these are the businesses we think uh, are going to be the most exposed. And that's probably broadly in line where a lot of commentators are at, that they're concerned about the motor retail market because that's been a longer trend that we've talked about. 
And then there's areas of the kind of general retailers uh, where they're looking at where the discretionary spend would go if the UK consumer, um, as a result of, you know, either weaker sterling or other factors, was to weaken. Right. So it's about what they're selling as much as anything else. Yeah, exactly right. Um, So DFS, linked to the housing market. Also with Um, people buying on credit. Tops tiles. We had a pretty pretty shaky update. It wasn't great. No, yeah, and they said it was lower transactions in the housing market. MacArthur and Stone, the retiree house builder, um, also said that they'd seen some kind of slower secondary market. But then the new build, uh, the house builders, you know, building new, new homes, they've continued to progress very strongly. So and said uh, a persimmon the other day said that the market very much took the snap election in its stride. Oh God, yeah, the election, blimey! <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I was here. When the when the result was known, I mean, good lord! I presume yeah, a lot has to... happened. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that had happened since you've been away. I forgot about the election. <laughs> <laughs> Only one of the, the the biggest events of the of the year. That, but yes, anyway. So you have been in a bunker. Oh man, I've bunkered down. <laughs> absolutely, one hundred percent. Survivalist um, instinct kicking in. Yeah, I, I just got. I, I must admit, I found that the news rather relentlessly awful. And I, I, kept, I kept watching for watching and listening for a week, and then just I can't take any more of this. <laughs> well, fair enough. Um, yeah, so retailers, kind of what we th- what what we have been thinking for a while is sort of playing out. I mean, you could you could say the food retailers are coming back from from some dark times. Exactly, um, and inflation is helping them. A, a somewhat inflationary environment is always good news for retailers. Uh, food retailers, that is exactly. And uh, so we we had Sainsbury's quarterly update where they baked in the Argus figures for the first time um and they were good uh, so they helped the overall sainsbury's numbers but that whole uh, deal seems to be paying off in terms of the added distribution um they said that customers in the sunny weather had been uh buying paddling pools and fans i don't know if that was you at home john ordering in a nice paddling pool my, my kids did say daddy where's the paddling pool <laughs> and my, i said you're not getting out my dad has bought a paddling pool oh, and a water meter now <laughs> My dad's bought a paddling pool for his grandkids that has a slide into a paddling pool. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, it's, it is epic. When, when I was a kid, I, I had a slide and a paddling pool, and I just put the slide in the paddling pool. Entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, that absolutely. Is. <laughs> I mean, motor retail, you mentioned it at the beginning. I don't think we've... Have we mentioned it in this, this issue? Uh, I can't remember seeing it, but, but they've had some figures out. That the, the motor retail industry is looking a little bit shaky at the moment. Yes. I mean, the BCA marketplace numbers that came out... I think the week before, um, were very strong. The market being strong is obviously being driven by a lot of the finance, and that's what the regulators are um, concerned about. So you're seeing where there's still come some quite strong figures coming through from the retailers and the wholesalers. Um, but actually, that's part of the problem, is that on um, some money uh, on finance that might be pulled out of the market, is that market kind of too hot from a credit perspective? So, yeah, it's very much a lot of eyes on that. Indeed. Um, I mean, let's go back quickly to food retail while we're on the subject of retail and talk about Cardo. I'm sure you talked about this uh, over the last week, uh, last month, what with its uh, deal, of which we still seem to know very little. No, we know it's a European retailer and we don't really know much more than that. But they've had some results. They don't look good. They don't. I'm, the problem with Cardo is that it's just having to invest so much uh, to maintain and improve its customer proposition um, such as uh, picking delivery slots and everything that they are doing, which is helping in terms of lifting their active customer base, uh, which grew really uh, strongly in the first half. Um, it's also meaning that the 
the average customer basket actually fell slightly uh, because customers were shopping more frequently. So you've got this picture of more frequent um, deliveries, which is costing them ever more. That's more expensive. Costing them ever more. They're having to invest in the platform, um, which they're now in negotiations with multiple retailers around um, licensing the software. Um, But these contracts are also costing them money. So it's just cost, cost, cost. And the debt's creeping up. And now the is, debt's creeping up. Which is our up. main observation on the latest set of results. Exactly. And it remains one of the most shorted stocks on the LSE for a reason. And I think that the rising debt, given the, ha- the amount they're having to spend, is going to make some people question at what point. Might they have to raise some money? Or how are they going to kind of manage that higher spending? Um, I suppose some of these contracts could come through and that would help them out at the top line. Mm. Um, but It just yeah. feels like a bit... We're still in this jam tomorrow story that's been going on for the best part of a decade now. Yeah, it's becoming a bit of a running joke now that the, the, the next deal is just around the corner. And obviously when you were away, we had the Amazon and Whole Foods deal, um, which again fed bears on the food retailers in terms of how much of the online market they can protect um, the, the established players. I, mean, I guess, I guess. I mean, just, you know, just talking about that very briefly, because I'm sure you've been over this before. I mean, I thought that deal was fascinating. It obviously got a lot of... I did pick up on that, believe it or not. So I came out of the bunker for a few minutes and noticed that Amazon had made a, this huge acquisition. Whole Foods is not big in the UK. This, this to me, is would be more... I would be more worried if I were an investor in US uh, grocery retail businesses. Yeah, and the shares of those businesses reflected that in terms of the fall on the day. Actually, one, one, one big provider of US grocery, I tipped it years ago, it's actually a Dutch company. It's uh, Royal Ahold, which owns a number of uh, franchises, supermarket franchises in the US. Anyway, I think the point is, is that UK retailers, food retailers... Are not should I wouldn't imagine that they would be too worried about this right now, but this is a, I would imagine if they're looking five years down the road, the Amazon thing should be a concern to them. And I think you could cite that as one reason, and I did for the Sainsbury's um, agree- agreement to take over Nisa. So it's if you understand the Amazon Whole Foods deal as being about in the US market, as you've said getting those local distribution centres, getting that footprint in the local community so you can do the pick-up, the click and collect, as well as as the delivery, uh, and that kind of convenience, the future of convenience as being a a mix of that. Um, Then what you've seen in the UK through Tesco buying Booker and um, Sainsbury's... Trying to buy Booker. Trying to buy Booker. We're still not there yet, are we? Well, I I, I, I thought we'd seen it. I would have seen the end of that by the time I came back, but... uh... No, that is going to roll on. You know, and so that plus what we're seeing with Sainsbury's and Nisa, you could interpret it as a bit of a land grab for those kind of local convenience sites because where we are still seeing retail be strong is food, but especially fresh food. And those sites... I saw in the Nisa annual report that the chief executive said that actually they are protected to an extent because although people are buying online, people are also doing that top-up shop. So it's a mixture of the two, and I think mm. they're looking at where where the consumer is going to be in terms of their uh, con- consumption habits in five, ten years' time. And I think you have to factor Amazon into that discussion. Amazon is just so good at delivery; it's what they do. And, exactly. You know, they're they're, they're amazing, and 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 to, and to actually compete with that, if they do. You know, go hell for leather into to food retail. It's going to be expensive for them. Given the amount of, and th- that's the story of Amazon. It's very much that they will invest more than anyone else, and it's very hard for incumbent players to keep up when they have shareholders that are worried about dividends and, and EPS. Yeah, absolutely. Before we move on from retail, one more retail thing I want to talk about, which I always want to talk about, which is JD Sports, which is your uh, third D, a rather tenuous D. It was a tenuous day. They they saw their shares drop quite quite sharply. And and JD Sports is a company we've liked. We've liked it for a long time. You know, I know my kids like it. I, it's it's always the busiest shop in Westfield. What happened? It seems to be that it was 
it didn't outperform. That's what it is, is it? I think it's partly that. But the shares were never expensive. They've never been expensive. Yeah, but if you look at the earnings upgrades and how they've re-rated the share um, over the past five years, it's been pretty consistent. So anything that is less than kind of stellar is bad for JD. And then if you factor into that, the fact they gave some guidance around like-for-like sales where they said calendar differences made them very hard to rely on um, for a part of the year. That never feeds confidence. And they also said that they'd had some margin pressure to um, achieve sales as well. So it was a combination of those things, although in some ways it was an inline statement, it was a combination of those things that the market took to be very negative. Mm. So perhaps it was bullishness coming off or perhaps it was concern around um, what margin sacrifice they had to make to kind of keep the like for likes coming through buy an opportunity yes i mean that's how we viewed it absolutely i i noticed we have we have results from supergroup as well who uh yeah the thing that struck me about those results from supergroup is is the way they're they're extending the brand into actually into to an area that that jd has been very strong in, which is this kind of well, sports fashion athleisure athleisure everyone's favorite portmanteau yeah is it are, they, are people really actually Use, using buying this stuff to, to actually do exercise in or is it the same as JD you buy a pair of trainers to, to look cool rather than to run fast well um, the supergroup CEO actually made the point to us that he thought the advantage that supergroup or as a super dry sport would have over um, Nike or Adidas is that it has um, a focus on the fashion rather than the actual efficacy of the <laughs> clothes so it is as a sporting so it yeah. is a fashion thing. Well, he, so, so in which case you should you should look at it and and, in, and interpret what it's doing there in that athleisure as you call it in, in exactly the same way you would look at what jd sports is doing yeah exactly and he thinks that they it's going to be very strong for them because it is actually more about fashion than it is about sportswear that works i'm not sure if i'm convinced of that i, argument. I, I think i think so mm. as long as as long as kids continue to think that that leisure wear is is fashionable I, I can't see it myself. I haven't bought mm. a pair of tracksuit bottoms in years. No. How about you, Tom? Uh, you're, you're a fashionable young man. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> What's more important, the athletics or the leisure of the athleisure? I can perform in anything. <laughs> <laughs> this took a strange turn. Let's, uh, let's move on to you, Tom. Um, right, I'll, I'll stop grilling you about your fashion choices and I'll start grilling you about the utility business because we've had quite a bit of news on, mm. on the sort of energy front this week. Where, where do you want to start? Up to you. Absolutely. To you. So, uh, so uh, utility-wise, uh, fell 30% after it announced it would have to return uh, 7.6 million in commissions to one of its customers. So, and that, that customer being one of the energy suppliers that it works with yes. to supply the many businesses that it's, that it's essentially consulting for. Yes, that's right. So, right. so what's happened is typically they will, um, when they agree on these contracts, they'll have some sort of historical bills or, or some idea of what the consumption of this uh, this company is, and then they'll make a calculation based off that. Uh, so we, they'll look at the previous energy supplier and say how much did that business use with the previous energy yeah. supplier, which, 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 is the they, same, which is the same thing that happens in the domestic market. Exactly. Well, yeah, 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 exactly. Where, where they don't have that information, they will they'll have a process of coming up with an estimate, which uh, at the time, that process was overseen by the sales department, as I understand it, that's now moved to the accounting department when the new CEO joined. That seems sensible. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that seems like a bad set of controls. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, but so, yeah. I have to say, I mean, you know, in utility-wise defence, these... You, you kind of sometimes these things that your business evolve in a certain way, and, and 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 until something happens like this, you don't it's, you don't think it's going to be a problem. But you know, yeah, it, it has become a problem. It makes much more sense now that they've shifted that into the accounting department. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, typically, it has to be said, uh, typically this, these estimates only account for uh, less than five percent of the the overall 
business, but for for this particular customer, it was at times I'm told as high as thirty percent of the, the contracts they were booking were were using this these estimates. Right. They will return seven point six million between now and December twenty twenty. Uh, they've said that they might well see some of that back as the company sort of uh, consumes over time. They get a, a better idea of what they actually end up using, but um, in the name of prudence, they decide to sort of. Uh, say they'll give 7.6 back and then if they end up seeing some of that again then then bully for them great uh, but we, I mean, we did like this company i mean it's you know it, this i mean it sounds it's a 7.6 million is a large amount of money to have to to return mm. in one go um i mean it's not that big a company so that that is material um but is it an overreaction that the shares fell so much uh in response to this given that you know the, the it's a one-off you would think a one-off problem that has been identified that has been brought in in hand mm. um you know is but we have downgraded yes so um uh, firstly on the the share reaction i th- i i want to say that that's probably partly to do with fatigue there were some issues um or some people raised concerns about uh receivables and sort of how they were billing Historically, that that's sort of, as I understand it, been been sorted. Yeah, I mean, it does, it does sort of smack a little bit of a, of a revenue recognition issue uh, in some respects, and, mm. and those things are, are very scary for uh, for investors in growth companies. Yeah. Also, um, uh, Michael Donnelly, an analyst I spoke to at Pamela Gordon, who it has to be said is very bearish on this company and has been for a long time. He pointed out that sort of, uh, last time they paid back money to shareholders was just the interim results, so four point five million in in uh, cash advances. Uh, after it transpired, uh, a, a assumed volume of contracts wouldn't be met. So it's, I think it's probably a, a drip drip of a number of things rather than this one, uh, right. this 7.6 million being so this, this some, is, something catastrophic. This has been essentially a straw that's broken the camel's back after that's, a series that's of... how uh, I see it. Yeah. Of what appears to be some problems with, uh, as Ian puts it, controls within the business not being mm. what they should be. We're, yeah, but they have, they have now been moved, so uh, in... In the name of fairness, it, it, management does seem to be trying to do everything they can to get out ahead of it. But we will sit on the sidelines for now. Yes. Fine. Let's uh, let's stick with energy. Let's talk about uh, the price comparison uh, news that you mentioned in the new spotlight. This is interesting. It is. It seems sort of strange, but interesting. Tell, tell us what's going on. It's um, So, Ofgem has come out with... Uh, well, it's come out with proposals to basically relax how price comparison websites show results and also it sounds like launched their own switching service which could potentially be a competitor as well as writing to people to inform them people on the standard variable tariff to inform them there are cheaper deals mm. they're basically it looks like they're, they're throwing all sorts of stuff out there to see what aids switching they because, because, I mean, I guess I guess the reason being that the big problem in the sector is that people are uh, yeah, inertia. It's not just mm. the energy sector. Look at the banking sector, or telecoms, any, yeah, anything. Telecom. Mm. So, but, but, but regulators yeah. are obsessed with this idea that they need to get people to switch, and obviously people should switch. It's in their interest, but people don't switch, and they don't switch their bank account, and they don't switch their energy contract. And now they're saying, let's provide an actual price comparison site mm. to get them to switch. Um, yeah. are, they, are they serious? They're going to launch their own price comparison. Off, Jim, the regulator uh, is talking about launching its own price comparison sites for energy. Yeah, one of the things they're trialling is an online switching service that you would access through the regulator. I, I presume so. Yeah, seems it's bizarre. I think they're just kind of trying a number of things to see what works. I find the price comparison stuff quite interesting because they're essentially 
the, the sort of problem they've identified, the barrier to switching, is that say you put in your details, you're looking for a new deal, it will show you every available deal. Some of those will be partners uh, who will pay a commission to the price comparison site if the person switches and yes. stays. Some of them won't. And if say you say the, the cheapest one is such and such an energy company, which isn't a partner, you would then have to click and then re-enter all your details. And basically the hassle of doing that is, is apparently a barrier to switching. So now they don't have to show as a default all of the deals it's just the ones that they have partners with so it's I not really that, that's not really true price comparison no, I, I think the regulators no. tied themselves up in knots with this a little bit this right? sounds like a mess because they, they, they seem to get to a point where they're accepting that price comparison websites wouldn't be whole of market that they could have these set well they do have to have a prominent thing to show all of the options but just as a default but they are allowed to have their own preferred deals that you can't get elsewhere that they have with suppliers sure. they, price comparison websites are allowed that by the regulator so you won't get that deal on another price comparison website and what they've said previously is that they want consumers to use multiple price comparison websites which seems mm. to be asking a lot given that people don't like to switch anyway so I, I think why i say potentially they've tied themselves up in knots is that now they're saying they will provide an online switching service to help people who can't access the right deals just through what's already there you think i don't know well, they, That's if they're price comparison websites have been forced previously to have everything. You wouldn't need the service. So, what, what, what need is it filling? Well, indeed, indeed. Um, and we've seen this in the property space as well. So, you know, uh, slightly different, but you know, you had Right Move and Zoopla that had obviously cornered the market in, in terms of online estate agency in, in terms of listings, and, and the industry tried to basically compete with them by launching its own portal which hasn't really worked it hasn't although they just had a supportive uh, court case outcome today that, that regarding whether they're allowed to kind of um have the kind of rules of on the market right where you're allowed to um if you use one of them you're only allowed to use one of the other um, portals right move or zoopla um but yeah in some ways in some ways mad they had rules to, mm. to make these things work it it, it it looks like a very reactive move. Uh, the only thing, like you say, uh, it didn't really work very well because actually people still want to use those portals. In terms of market share, right move is absolutely huge. Well, you go with you go where the, you know what's top of mind. What's what's got the brand recognition? Mm. You know, in in property, it's right move and Zoopla. You know, in 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 energy, it's you know it's you switch and mm. money supermarket and, and whoever else is doing it. You know, that spend millions mm. on branding, television branding. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, If it, this fundamental question, how do you make people switch? Obviously, you can try and adv- uh, there could be a government sponsored campaign like you have in other areas such as saving pensions, you know, telling you to save. But it's a it's campaign- very hard to for inert people to actually get them to sh- to shift. Well, indeed, but it's a campaign that you would have to almost be running permanently because, you know, yeah. people shift will, mm. will shift. They will have, you know, they'll, they'll kind of start looking at their energy bills at different times of the year and you know yeah. once you've switched you know you're on a tariff for two years and then you know mm. do you need to be reminded again i mean you know, i mean this just, is a, it's almost ending problem you get people checking yeah. every year as well so it would yeah. literally be sort of as soon as the last person switched you got to start again i mean in some ways this area of policy is a bit of a casualty of the election you had both the major parties who are proposing interventions in the energy market for these people on these um we st- should talk standard about variable it, yeah because they have They've given next to no detail on that at all. They, they mention a, a safeguard tariff as an example of an option being considered. So we're not having an energy cap after all. Well, it, I mean, yeah, it, as soon as the It Tory... sounds like it. So the, what they're considering, so we could take this as a steer if you want, but it, it doesn't commit to anything. They would have what sounds like an absolute cap 
on prices for the standard variable tariff for a select group of people as yet undefined. Yeah, and that was that was a classic centrist policy that makes very difficult for the Tories to put in place any kind of price cap, given that they've had such a chase, well, they're now in a minority government. Well, I was going to say, the one bit of, one bit of uh, political news that I did pay attention to this month is that the Tories didn't do quite so well in the elections <laughs> as, as, as they thought they were going to, and a lot of the policy ideas that they, they'd uh, waved have, have, have fallen by the wayside. Mm. No, exactly right, and a lot of those aren't in the corporate sector, right? Grammar schools... Um, kind of changes to fox hunting these are the kind but, of things but, but, the, but the much more inter- interventionist the much more interventionist approach that mm. that uh theresa may was was proposing presumably at the behest of her her key advisors who are no longer her key advisors exactly that's right. gone that kind of centrist toryism when yeah with the election result um there obviously is the when it comes to the culprit governance which was a big part of that um there obviously is a consultation ongoing so um the government could still come forward with proposals around that. But the fact that we have a two-year Queen's speech um, that doesn't have any of those uh, proposals in it makes it very unlikely. Um, and really all that a minority government being um, propped up by the DUP leaves us with is a government that's very much singly focused on uh, the Brexit negotiations. So perhaps we'll just expect more of the same for I, I the next I might have years. predicted that that was what was going to happen when we, when we were having a pint one evening. <laughs> In the murky mist of time. In the murky mist of time. <laughs> when I remember, I was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you very much right, I'm sure. Okay, so energy, well, that's all as clear as mud. Um, <laughs> but that is the energy market for you. I, actually, I switched a while back from uh, from British Gas to Eon. British Gas, who I understand, have, uh, have, have had some troubles themselves this week so Ofgem came out by the time this goes out it'll be uh, yesterday morning uh, Ofgem's opened an investigation into British Gas to do with possible breaches of the rules around switching uh, yeah around switching Ofgem does say in, in its statement announcing it uh, very clear to say that there's no implied guilt they haven't found anything they're just opening an investigation mm. but, open investigation yeah. with mm. for no <laughs> a bizarre way of approaching that. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I switched, uh, and I got my I've, I've got my bills, my first bills from Eon. I, you know what? I, I understand them about as well as I understood the British gas ones. Uh, I, I actually think the whole way that energy pricing and bills are presented, that the, the way you know, it's I, it's just incomprehensible. And you know, I consider myself to be a fairly numerate and intelligent person, and I can't understand what is being put in front of me. Mm. Uh, I could if I spent enough time uh, and took a degree in, in uh, uh, understanding energy billing, but but no, I, I, I think there is there is something very wrong mm. with with the way this is all being done. Yeah, I think you had political consensus as we were saying that this was a broken market for a certain proportion of the population. It is a broken market. Yeah, and the, and both parties had plans to address that in quite an interventionist way and neither of those plans are now going to be taken forward although funnily enough there is consensus but you know that's just the nature consensus of the but no one can agree what to do next <laughs> um okay I mean, let's, for no agreement let, let's quickly turn to the cover feature before we wrap up uh which you've contributed to this week tom yep. it's about water mm-hmm. um it's written by by uh, an outside contributor mark dunn actually used to work for shares magazine um it's a great feature um, really looking at how, how how water is becoming essentially the most s- sought after commodity, mm. uh, and obviously becoming in- incredibly expensive as a result. Actually, I mean, let's stick with the um, let's stick with the consumer theme, which is the bit you've written about, Tom. Mm. Um, you know, energy water companies have not seemed to get them to have got themselves into anywhere near the same pickles as the as the uh, the energy utilities. That's why, true. Why is that? What are they doing so much better? I mean, or are they? Well, it's. 
It's not uncommon to see some some pretty hair raising stuff. So they've dumped 1.4 billion liters of raw sewage into the Thames. They're also uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's missing standard. <laughs> Who has? No one goes through it in the Thames. If anything was an improvement. <laughs> um, they also missed uh, leakage targets. I, I don't have the figures on me, but it was uh, by quite some egregious amount. It was Thankfully, for, for, for readers of the Investors Chronicle, Thames Water is not a, uh, yes. a publicly traded company. It's owned by, in fact, I think the Chinese own a fair chunk of Thames Water. Uh, Kuwait. The Kuwait. Sovereign Wealth Fund. Pretty sure the Chinese yeah. own some of it. So, but anyway, these, these, uh, these private equity owned assets move, move, around, move hands or change hands all the time. But the, the, the publicly listed mm. uh, water utilities, which you've written about, yep. seems to be doing well. I mean, some particularly yep. well uh, in terms of earning the bonuses that, that, that they can earn for, from actually you know, achieving sort of some of the kind of non-core targets that, uh, yeah. that, that, that they need to. Yeah, so the, the way it's regulated is with uh, things called outcome delivery incentives or, uh, or ODIs, where basically um, off what at the start of uh, a five-year periods. Regulatory it. periods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the start of each period, they'll set um, a number of targets around all sorts of stuff to do with repairing pipes, leakage targets, consumer experience, all this kind of thing. And then the, um, the companies will... will of try and perform against those they can be fined if they miss and they can be rewarded if they if they surpass their targets and they've all been rewarded in in the latest uh, uh yeah periods yeah I, i'm not i'm not sure on the different scales of the, the sort of size of the water departments of these companies so mm. it's, uh I wouldn't take it as well seven trent is the best or whatever but uh so seven trent uh earned a net reward of uh, 47.6 million versus uh uh, 3.6 for um, Southwest Water, which is owned by Ipenon, and uh, United Utilities, and uh, 6.7 million. So they're all outperforming against their against their targets. And it's quite interesting how they try and justify the investments they've made because there's another live debate around the privatisation of the water industry and has that Indeed. left us with a better water industry than it had been held in government's oh, well, this, in I mean, state this, hands. Well, this was a you know this was a key Corbyn uh, manifesto proposal. Was That's that exactly we were, right. We yeah. were you know taking to public ownership the the uh, uh, the water industry. Exactly right. Mm. So they are very much on the defensive in terms of trying to justify why it's been a good thing. And if you read the latest Seven Trent annual report, um, the chief executive makes a, um, is clear um, in his view that um, the investment. That privatisation has led to more, as he sees it, investment. Although the other side of the argument is, if they didn't have to pay out dividends, they could reinvest that money. Indeed, and and I, if I remember rightly, there is also the the other point that water bills have risen quite substantially uh, since privatisation. Forty percent, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's it's a big number. Yeah. Now, is is that to do with you know essentially the 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 private? water industry fleecing its customers or the fact that water is, is becoming a more scarce resource mm. that, that requires a lot more work to actually get clean water into people's homes and that yeah. that is the kind of essence of this feature exactly yeah absolutely yeah and i i think that there's going to be a live debate around a number of these um industries that is not going to have been killed by the election people are going to still we're going to return to the subject of water um and whether um, this form of ownership is in the interests of the consumer ultimately but for the moment, it, it means very solid income for shareholders. 
Yeah, mm. yeah. We, well, we're pretty bullish on the water companies still, are we? I mean, generally. Yeah, yeah. I um, uh, wrote about Pennon a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like a good place to be. Yeah, and, and, and you know, more generally, so looking beyond the UK, the feature is looking at sort of you know, water opportunities to play the water market around the world. Mm. And Mark looks at things. So there's lots of collective vehicles. You can buy ETFs to, to, to tap into water. A lot of funds that, that, that invest in various companies throughout the water supply chain. A lot of that's technology as well. Yeah, actually. exactly. And it's the sustainability theme, isn't it? Is that we have to um, get more out of our water supply or be more sufficient as um, the global population increases. Yeah, I mean, there's a lovely figure that uh, the global population will have risen to 9.7 billion by 2050, according to the UN. That's 2.2 billion more people than we have on the planet today. And we're already at a point where, you know, the scarcity of resources is causing all sorts of of problems, you know, including, you know, geopolitical problems. A lot of the problems in the Middle East, for example, are being pinned on on drought. Yeah, exactly right. It's going to be a more of a live issue politically and there's another stat in here that by 2030 the demand for water is going to rise by 41 percent so between 2010 and 2030 which is a huge proportional increase yeah, so a lot of these companies that are part of these funds that are mentioned are in recycling water or they're in improving the infrastructure there's lots of companies that provide services to the water industry but the whole theme is about yeah, trying to sweat water better. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting as well. I mean, you, th- you know, when you think of water, you just think of what, you know, what you stick in the kettle when you're having a cup of tea or uh, what you consume or what you have a bath in. But, you know, there's, the b- demands for water stretch way beyond that, obviously into agriculture. But I, I think what, I, what I, I knew, but I hadn't really fully appreciated, was how much water is required in industries like mining. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know various other various other really you know industrial uh, markets that just use huge quantities of water, and obviously what they leave behind can't be can't be drunk. No, exactly, and and there's also the London listed companies like WYG. You see these kind of relatively small but kind of growing number of contracts uh, where they're working with in, in that, that project is the Climate Resilient Infrastructure Development Facility, basically in, in Southern Africa, improving the resilience of the of the kind of water infrastructure. Um, and this is definitely part of the UK overseas development policy um, to, to help these to help these countries to manage this better, and that will mean managing conflicts in the way that you described. Yeah, it's, it's an area where there's actually a lot of different companies supporting this, more than you'd think, probably. Yeah, big industry, big yeah. industry. And, and actually, it's, it's obviously very much related to the whole climate change uh, agenda, which obviously has been in the news this month. When did when did Donald Trump announce that he was withdrawing America from the uh, the Paris Climate Accord? Was that this month? Or was that before I went uh, away? I believe that was last month. That was shortly after Macron was... Uh, yeah, it was. I was, st- I was still here. But anyway, we never really got to grips with that. And, he also uh, said it on the campaign trail, didn't he, a couple of times? Well, that it was of, a bad deal. He suggested yeah. he, he might and then sort of wavered. And, you know, it was sort of a bit of, will he, won't he? And then he did. And yeah. everyone, de- you know, just de- declared him deplorable again. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, it's fascinating. We're going to go away in a minute, Tom, talk about climate because I think yeah. this is a big topic that we need to, to look at more. Um, it's actually one of those... Climate and ethics, yeah, it's one of those things that people, investors are naturally sort of they, they turn their noses up and think, mm. oh, boring old rubbish, mm. uh, hippie rubbish. But, but you know, I, so one of the funds mentioned in the piece, Impacts, you know, their, their view, mm. I spoke to them a few years back, was, you know, as an investor, you have to understand the, 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 how climate repercussions and water is part of that 
could actually affect the value of the portfolio the companies you're investing yeah. in. You know, Managers like Pictay and, and Impacts have been banging that drum for a while. I think they? they're bang yeah. on. I think it's absolutely right. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, thank you, Ian. Thank you, Tom. Let me quickly talk you through what else we've got in the magazine. So I'm going to work backwards. A few results. Not too busy yet. It's going to pick up in the middle of June, I think. Sure uh, is. July, even. Yeah, the end, of, the end of July get very busy. A temporal distortion there in my mind still. Uh, we've got a sex focus from Alex Newman on uh, deep water drilling in the oil industry and what, what's going on there. Uh, Algae Hall's uh, big reliable stock screen, uh, which is doing okay. Lots in the personal finance fun section, which they will obviously discuss on their podcast tomorrow. Uh, the usual tips, the usual comments. Uh, John Barron. Uh, writes this month about his uh, hare and tortoise strategy. He's obviously a, a tortoise investor rather than a hare. Very sensible. Very much the IC way. Um, and yeah, lots more in the news section, actually. It's been a good week for news. Good month for news. Good month for news. There's been more today that we'll be talk- uh, writing about next week. Nove being taken over. Only three Lloyds insurers left on the London market. Wow. Once they go. Well, there might be none left after Brexit. They all head off somewhere else. <laughs> um, which is what I write about in my editorial. Uh, I think we're starting to really see where, where the priorities are. Lloyds of London's going nowhere. If you read the Brexit-proof portfolio feature from last week. It's just evaporating. It's, uh, it's a global market. Yeah, the European Union is very small for it. Okay. Yeah, that's my prediction. Okay, good. Well, that's good. Anyway, so, so as I say, my editorial, we're looking at, you know, we're starting to see signs of where the priorities around Brexit negotiations are, are focusing, pharmaceuticals being one of them, agriculture being another. Got Supply to- chain. Supply chain. These are all the things we started to write about and we'll continue to do so. Finance, we've been quite on finance so far. What? The financial market. And uh, well, yeah, we, uh, we've written a little bit about passports. Oh, we have. Oh, sorry. But, but in terms of the big discussions, I haven't heard a great deal. Uh, the city are pushing for kind of special skills visas. They want to make sure that all the quants that come over from Europe um, can kind of stay there. And obviously they're making their own representations in terms of the city's access. I mean, that's an area where we are have quite a strong hand because obviously European companies don't want to lose access to the ability to raise finance, insure against risks in the London market. I mean, that would pose um, a threat to financial stability across Europe. Surely. Indeed, indeed. Well, we'll, we'll get on to that in the, mm. in the coming months. We, we, we will be uh, continually updating as, as information comes available from the Brexit negotiations. So anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Tom, again. We'll be back again next week. Tap into Water, £4.90 all good news agents speak to you soon